Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. In this episode, made for Pride Month 2021, we explore some of the challenges facing LGBT plus British Asians and ways in which social workers can better support this community. For the discussion, I'm joined by Sidi Joshi, founder and chairperson of British Asian LGBTI online support group and community engagement lead at Club Cali Network. I'm also joined by Kakan Qureshi, founder of Finding a Voice and co-administrator of British Asians LGBTI, and Narinder Sidhu, Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Lead Officer with Basra. Sidi, Kakan, Narinder, it's lovely to have you with me. How are you doing, Sidi? How are you doing? Hello. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very well. Thank you for having me on your podcast. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Kakan, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me in. You're very welcome. And Narinder, my colleague and friend, welcome. Thanks, Andy. It's going to be great. I'm really, I'm really um, eager to to uh, discuss the, this topic with Sidi and Kakan. Brilliant. And just to give people a bit of a sense of where everyone is, tell us, uh, Narinder, where are you in the UK at the moment? I'm in East Midlands in Derby, so relatively um, quite a boring place, I think, sometimes. Um, quite diverse, um, but I work across all the nations, so I get my uh, culture fix in that sense. Your culture fix, that's a nice way to put it. Um, Kakan, where are you? Um, well, we moved from Birmingham to Wensbury early last year, just before COVID, so uh, we're trying to settle in and try, trying to get the house uh, up, to, up to our standards. Um, and Wensbury okay. is a nice little town, about 30 minutes away from Birmingham city centre. So we're settling in quite nicely, thank you. Okay, so still Midlands though, yes, is that right? It is, yeah, the okay. West Midlands. Okay, and Sidi, you are, you're in London, is that right? Yep, um, I'm in um, Merton in um, southwest London and um, uh, just in Morden, which is the last stop on the Northern Line. Okay, and you were not, until reasonably recently, you were in Galway, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm uh, I'm also a marine biologist in, by profession, and um, so I spent ten years living in Ireland wow. in Galway. Wow. It must have been a terrible <laughs> wrench to go back uh, to go to London. <laughs> well, um, I, I moved during the lockdown, so um, it, it 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 was good good to move back with my family and stay with my family here. Yes, that's lovely. So, that's lovely. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, Sidi, can you, just to kick us off, I'm keen um, to talk about the work that you do with the British Asian LGBTI support group. Can you begin by telling me a bit about when the organisation was set up and why it was needed? So um, the British Asian LGBTI started off in September 2013 when it it actually began as a Facebook initiative, which it, it all started when I was listening to, like I had had um, experiences at university where I, I was coming to terms with my sexuality and um, I, I found that particularly difficult to deal with and um, I found I couldn't turn to my family for support so what what was happening was even if I'm, I'm from, from a very close family I, um, I found I, I was listening to my mum's favourite engine radio station 
and an anti-discrimination uh, charity representative was talking about, um, I, I wasn't out to my parents back then, and um, the, the the radio station was talking about how people who identify with the British LGBTI upbringing, as well as their Asian heritage, are often subject to the double double discrimination and like so I found I was listening to the radio station and there was such a need for to help others who are facing the same problems I faced during my growing up so it was it was like I thought I thought we need to we need to form a support group and um it started off as a Facebook page and social media where because there was the Section 377, which I know we're going to talk about later. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, just in relation to even setting up the page, though, that in itself, there was an element of coming out in, in creating that, that Facebook page. Was, was there, was there a, did that feel like an obstacle to overcome? Yeah, it did. Because I, as I said, I wasn't out to my parents back then. And then another turning point was when I met uh, a Ugandan LGBTI rights activist at the Amnesty um, International Conference in Ireland. And she really inspired me to um, look at the global gay rights situation. And like in places like Uganda, where homosexuality is criminalised. Uh, so it, it just it just led me to really examine the issues of global LGBTI rights. Fantastic. And yes, the issue around 377 of the Indian uh, Penal Code, something I want to come on to later. So thank you for, for flagging that up at the start, Sidi. Um, Kakan, in relation to your experiences, you founded Finding a Voice, and that's Birmingham's first voluntary-led, independent, multi-faith South Asians LGBT social support group. Same question to you. What led you to setting the group up, and, and when did you set it up? Um, there's a number of contributing factors for me setting up the group. Because um, I came to social media late, uh, sort of I went onto Facebook and Twitter around about 2010 on Twitter, and I used to use them, look out for gay Muslims, and nothing came up. Um, and then I was also experiencing quite a personal family matter as well, um, whereby I wasn't receiving the support that I thought I would have within the family. And then I thought, well, there's got to be something out there for me in terms of support systems, whether it was counselling or social services or any other kind of peer-to-peer support group. And I couldn't find anything at all. And I looked for years um thinking there's got to be something and then somebody suggested that i set up a group myself and yeah although i worked within the sphere of social care i didn't really have the confidence to set up something like that because i was mindful of their reactions and then in 2012 2013 i started googling sort of gay muslims or south asian muslims or british asians lgbt and just when I came up with the name, coincidentally, just when I thought of British Asian LGBT, I went onto Facebook that same evening, and lo and behold, I seen um, British Asian LGBT, um, which is founded by Sidi. Um, <laughs> and then I started um, commenting on the posts, and Sidi seemed to appreciate that, and she asked me uh, via personal message um, that if I'd like to become co-administrator on the page, um, which is what I did do. And we built up a really good um, relationship online. And at, at that point, I hadn't really spoken to Sidi. Um, we hadn't even met at all. 
Um, and then we got talking and then we carried on with the page. And obviously there was highs and lows with the page because it can be quite, um, quite daunting and quite frustrating as well because we were hoping for more traction. And we were saying, how do we gain more traction and get people to talk about homosexuality within our culture and our communities? Um, and then one, one day I said to Siddhi, you know, it's good that we've got this online support group, but I wanted something much more substantial. And obviously, because of Siddhi's commitments and my commitments, we couldn't do it together because also the distance between us. So I approached the... Um, I contacted the British, uh, sorry, the Birmingham LGBT Centre and asked them if I could lend a space from them. Um, and they gave me sort of like a six-month probation period, I suppose, to set it up and see how things pan out. Um, and I use social media a great deal just to try and promote the group. So eventually I launched the group in June 2014, um, which was initially just um, a once-a-month social support group. People came in talked about their coming experiences, how they feel that they're being treated either within the family, the workplace or out in the community. Um, and then one thing led to another. And before I know it, it's what, seven years, seven years later, it's still going. But well. but because of COVID, um, it's placed a little bit of a hiatus on it. But I was supposed to um, work in collaboration with the Curie Hospital here in Birmingham on a project last year. Um, obviously, COVID put pay to that. But yeah, the, the group kind of like was a spin-off to British Asian LGBT. So I called it like my, my sister group, really. Um, so we, sh we share similar information posts. Um, we try and offer support as much as possible to those within the community. Um, although we like British Asian is specific well it initially was specifically for british asians and mines for south asian lgbt we are very inclusive of other people as well so if anybody else from other ethnicity or nationality or any other background wants to join us then they're more welcome to do that brilliant and it's 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 really it's really incredible to hear just how vital and how important that peer support is in in, in relation to these scenarios i, I want to talk a bit about um the work the british asian lgbti does to connect people to services so when i was looking online i see that you know you connect people to services including advocacy counseling support in relation to mental health domestic abuse and disability now those are areas that are core to social work um in your experience, is social work as a profession adequately engaged to support the needs of LGBT plus people in the British Asian community? Well, um, in my experience, uh, certainly um, when British Asian LGBTI was first founded, there, there were very few culturally specific services available for LGBTI people in the Asian community. Um, so like we often get numerous calls from social workers who realise the need for such culturally specific services which um, so we find many people in the community feel isolated and at the same time throughout the seven years there's this growing um, need for liberation and so um, the, the the Asian community is um, um, very diverse group and um, LGBTI people f f within the Asian community have a very specific experience which 
basically is um, needs to be accommodated. And what what does it what does a culturally specific service? Could you give me an example, city of a of a culturally specific service, and um, how that service would be um, tailored to meet the needs of an LGBT plus person um, from British Asian community? Well, um, I would describe it as service which is um, aware of factors such as um, religious homophobia, um, biphobia, and transphobia and, and um which really understood like there's because there's in some um south asian cultures there's or arguably in all of them um there's a history of celebrating sexual diversity but then there's the whole stigma of religious homophobia and um colonial mentalities so it's uh, in my experience, um, a cultural specific service would be aware of the challenges the, which which the community face as a whole and through the South Asian heritage as well. Yeah. You know, just, just echoing what CD says, really, I suppose from a social work perspective, it's that cultural competence um, is, is usually a term that I find um, is useful when when dealing with um, with communities, and I think, like Siri touched on, you know, we're talking about different layers um, that a group, of, you know, of individuals face, and 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 from you know from the understanding that I've got, and please, you know, do uh, feel free to jump in, Siri and Kaken. I'm finding that there's challenge challenges like you face, like in regards to that the cultural factors like religion values. Honours, honour and shame is a really huge part of um, some of the the, the fear that, that's there as well in daily living as an individual who is, um, you know, from the LGBT. So there's that kind of homophobic, homophobic kind of honour abuse attached with it, um, which I can talk a little bit more about, um, you know, but I think that psychological, social and cultural factors definitely are very at the forefront um, when 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 dealing um, and trying to work with individuals, you really have to get um, to know that cultural aspect of their identity, and that's why intersectionality is really important in the work that Kaken and CD are, do- CD are doing at the moment. Absolutely. Would you say that to be true? Um, yeah, I will agree with what both of you have said. To be honest, um, I mean, from my experience as well, there's a number of other factors that we don't really touch upon. One is about language used, and the other one is about trust issues between, you know, either between communities or between social workers and um, British Asians. Um, you know, because within the South Asian community, we tend to use um, language between ourselves, which isn't quite familiar with the non-South Asian communities. For example, in terms of respecting our elders, we might say Uncle G or Auntie G or, you know, and when we're re- referencing, we might say that they're they're like an uncle or an aunt. Um, so that, that does, um, unfortunately, that does seem to play a huge factor in the way people interact. Um, you know, there's there's been some individuals when they're saying that they're trying to access services, um, you know, because they're being bullied or harassed by an uncle or auntie or something. And then the person doing the interviewing or the assessment, they might f- question it further and say, well, are you blood relations or, you know, I don't quite understand the dynamics of that relationship. And then you have to go through a whole rigmarole, I suppose, of trying to explain that, you know, it's just a phrase that we use, a term, term of endearment. So there's that thing which can be quite frustrating at times. Um, and then the other side is as well, is that some professionals within the South social worker um, industry, um, they don't quite understand the they don't quite understand the cultural dynamics of being 
gay or lesbian or queer or non-binary. So because within our, I don't know if Siddhi can agree or disagree, um, but because in our culture and language, we don't have words to identify people who are homosexual or lesbian. So that changes dynamics as well. And, you know, when you're either trying to come through it as a person of the LGBT community, or you want to fully express yourself as as being LGBT, there's no real words within our language, whether it's Urdu, Punjabi, or any other South Asian dialect or language to identify that way. Um, and even if it is used, it tends to be used in a derogatory manner. So there's those frustrations as well. So for somebody who's South Asian LGBT, it's just trying to look for somebody who can offer them reassurances and support and to let them know that it's okay. Um, and that's why I find a number of people coming through to especially looking for support. They always talk a bit more about their mental health, their anxieties, their depressions, their more so their low days than their high days. And that's really unfortunate because we're, we're not specialists in ourselves in terms of dealing with mental health. And again, it's about looking to um, organizations or agencies that can help them through it, which is lacking specifically in the Midlands. Um, there are services which are very much lacking in that respect. So if we if we explore the issue of intersectionality a bit, um, Kakan, homophobia within Asian communities. I was looking at the findings of a survey. It was taken from 2018 and it was commissioned by um, BBC British Asian Network. And it was, it was looking at issues around social values, various different issues. But there was a question on same-sex relationships or same-sex relationships acceptable. And I think it was, yeah, less than half of respondents from a British-Asian background, 43% said that they thought same-sex relationships were acceptable. And um, But when you look at all British people, 81% of uh, 18 to 34-year-olds, 76% of 35 to 54-year-olds, and 68% of 55-plus said that same-sex relationships are acceptable. So there seems to be a significant difference there. And we've talked a little bit um, about the, the role religion plays, and I do want to come back to that in a bit more detail soon. But how overt, um, as a British-Asian person, Kakan, as a British-Asian person, CD, how overt do you feel homophobia is within your own community? When you say within my own community, do you mean like in the, the South Asian community? Or? Sorry, yes, yes, within within South Asian community, yes. Um, I, I think they'll find, as years go on, there's obviously there's people who are going to be quite homophobic. They don't necessarily have to vocalise it, but I can tell in just their body language or the physical physicality in the way they sort of interact with me as well. Um, but there are some people who are tending to be a little bit more liberal. Um, but again, it's what I've noticed over the years that Sikhs and Hindus, um, they tend to be a bit more accepting than Muslims. Um, and the Muslims, I'm not going to target them and say that all Muslims are homophobic. But I'm currently in a quite a little bit of a heated exchange with somebody online on Twitter who he claims to be, well, he or she claims to be very much a Muslim and that I'm not Muslim because simply because I identify as being gay as well. Um, this is the kind of rhetoric that I've had many times over the years, um, especially, specifically from Muslim communities and individuals. But as I keep saying, for myself personally, I kind of counteract it by saying, but there are Muslims who are gay and there are also straight Muslims who are allies to me and they support me as well in my mission, I suppose. Um, so I think it depends on which circles that you're in and which community that you're living in or 
navigating. Can I ask, and this is, uh, forgive me, this is not in any way meant to be trite. Social media doesn't tend to bring out the best in people in terms of arguments. Would you find people are more uh, more ready to be overtly homophobic over social media than, than that you would find in day-to-day and in, in, in real life, person-to-person exchanges? Yeah, I think on social media in particular, people can be, uh, they can hide themselves, can't they? They can remain anonymous. Yes. But I think I'm quite tech savvy enough in that respect because I can block, delete or report. And quite a few, yes. <laughs> quite a few times I report it. But in real life, real life workplace situations or in the community, um, it's it's not so, ob- 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 it's not so obvious to me, to be honest, um, because the homophobia comes from everybody. It doesn't necessarily come from one particular community or um, ethnicity, you know. Yes. Um, so, so that's what we have to face up to, because for me, it's that dual discrimination, isn't it? One is I'm brown skinned and then the other side is that I'm gay. So, you know, I'm facing a dual discrimination. And when it's a female or a trans person, they might face triple discriminations. Uh, so it's different yes. issues, isn't it, really? Um, yes. in, in how we coordinate it, how we navigate it, how we deal with it. Um, I know some individuals who identify as part of the LGBT community, they can be very vocal within my social circle, as it were, and I feel that they've got a lot to say and they've got a lot of valuable insights and quite confident. But when I ask them to speak up, they'll say no because they, f- they fear negative repercussions. And for one or two individuals in particular that I know of personally, um, it plays very heavily on their mental health status. So, you know, one minute they can share quite happily on the stage, for example, in a presentation, not necessarily happily, but they'll share. Um, but but then because they tend to repeat their story and it brings back flashbacks and trauma and other emotions, then they, they'll decide that they want to withdraw. So it's a little bit swings and roundabouts, to be honest. Thank you, Kikan. Um, CD, from the information you've shared with me in terms of your bio, I'm aware that you are um, of Gujarati heritage. So can you tell me a bit about, just thinking about your wider community and your, your, your background, was homophobia an issue for you within the Gujarati community? Well, um, growing up, um, I, s- I spent some of my early years in um, Gujarat and I found the attitudes varied from being in India and to being in the UK. Um, so um, I, I found that there was a, lo- a lot of um, taboo surrounding sexual orientation and um, gender identity. And I found um, it was really up to me to look beyond the shame and stigma, which we talked about just now. And and, and, then, and then there was the pressure to conform to, to, st- to start a family with, um, with a man and get married um etc so i think um on one hand um i found there is a lot of acceptance out there but um there is a lot of pressure to conform to a heteronormative upbringing mm-hmm. and, Sidi, it's really um interesting to hear you speak because um i think you know as as asian um, and I think sometimes there's a generational aspect to this as well, because, um, you know, I'm actually a lot older than I look. <laughs> but um, I, um, when I grew up, that that was very much the norm, wasn't it? I mean, when I grew up, people weren't go- of my age weren't going to university. A very handful of Asian people were starting to go to university and better themselves. And I think that's when people started to actually have freedom on who they wanted to be and identity. 
Whereas before there was a set criteria, you know, you would as a female, Asian female, you would you would actually you would actually agree to those socially prescribed values and norms because it was just as when you were born, it was there. No one ever spoke to you about, oh, you're going to go off and marry it. And, and you just carried on going through these life changing events. You know, you, you, you went to school, you went to college, you then learned to drive and then you were going to get married and then you were going to have a baby. Um, but things are changing so much. And I think sometimes there's that generational attitudes as well, where the younger generation are actually teaching the older generation I've actually I know we had a little bit of a discussion on social media and what really interests me is that of late I've been looking at some Instagram posts of um, individuals that are very courageous and they're actually using um, social media to educate people about um, what religion say, says about um, homosexuality and so on and I've learned a lot about um, equality within the Hindu religion and Believe it or not, in some of the scriptures that we've got, like, for instance, within Sikh and Hinduism, it doesn't say anything where um, homosexuality or, you know, is actually, it's not even commented on. It's it's non-existence. And I think, again, with the religious, with the religious aspect paying such an important part, and, and we all know that religion, it's, 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 a, it's how you interpret that as well. And there's a lot, there's a spectrum on that itself. Um, and I think that's where... Um, the understanding of um, the understanding and actually the acceptance it's that part of that acceptance and it's 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 has such a massive impact um, on both males and females in different aspects and sometimes males um, Asian males can be living two lives where they're secretly having um, a relationship with someone of the same sex but then they're also in a heteronormative relationship um, you know, and, and, and that's keeping them sane. I also know of, you know, there's a lot of men having um, suicidal thoughts. Um, and and that, that we're talking um, that people are so distressed that, that they're having to um, end their life because they're not able to talk to their families or friends or the wider community. So I think the work that Sidi and Kakan do is so huge, really. And and what I've found within within my role, this recent role that I've got for Basel, is that it is actually charitable organisations and organisations at Sidi and Kakan, such as those that have been set up, they're actually doing a lot more work in supporting individuals from the LGBTI plus community. So we've talked about homophobia within British Asian communities, but what about racism within the wider LGBT plus community? Is that something that you've encountered, Kakan? Um, yeah, yeah, I have over the years as well. There was, you know, I think I'm, 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 I think I'm one of the more kind of resilient, more robust individuals out there, um, because with racism over the years, I've kind of learned to either, and I wouldn't necessarily say I ignore it. But I, I'm very much acknowledged that it's there, and sometimes I've learned to um, challenge it appropriately, um, and sometimes I've learned to walk away because sometimes I don't want to get myself involved in a quite a volatile or tense situation. Um, even though I have I have a partner who is you know of a different faith, different uh, ethnicity, different background to myself, but we've been together a number of years, um, and even he's appalled as well the way that um, some people have been quite racist towards me, and he's he's actually he's vocalised afterwards they'll say the person who's been abusive they're not realize that you're with me because you know and then there's a whole load of like stigma and different levels of abuse because some people talk to me um 
you know, that as if I don't speak English or I'm not British enough. Um, and some people have quite blatantly said the P word in front of me. Um, people have sort of spat as I walk down the street, either behind me or in front of me. Um, so, yeah, that the kind of level of whether you want to call it microaggression or racism. That's, that's not that's not that's not microaggression. That's racism. Yeah, let's, let's call it what it so, is. So, yeah. So, so you know, it, it's it's quite disturbing at the, at the best of times, you know, um, and, and within the LGBT community as well, where we think that we should be there to lift each other up, whether we however we identify whatever color we are. Um, racism is very much rife um that's maybe one of the reasons why i don't go on the scene that often um i used to in the early years but the music club scene for the gay person wasn't for me um and i think i think i felt it though i really felt it as a brown person um and it was twofold one is because as a minority within the club as a brown person within the club i felt that people were selecting me or speaking to me because of my skin color um, but also at the same time, they were disregarding me or blanking me out because of my skin color. So, and I find, you know, 20 odd years later, that when I'm talking to young people who do go on the scene, that sort of mindset still occurs a lot. Um, and there's a number of people who are, you know, highlighting their preferences, um, being called out for being racist as well. And within the LGBT community, whether people say that they're not racist, we as individuals, we feel it. For example, a couple of years ago, with um, a number of people from my group finding a voice, we went to a, a, a local pub. And although there were seven or eight of us, when we walked in, we definitely felt that we were alienated and there was a slightly hostile kind of vibe in the air. And all of us, all of us, all like eight, ten of us, we felt it. And so we withdrew within five minutes. Um, so, so yeah, and it's only because the way either the way people look and we sense the way they talk of talk between each other when we walk through the door. And some of us who, you know, we wear our identity with pride. You know, if we're Asian, we want to wear our South Asian cultural clothing. So when we're going out, some people want to wear that to be proud. But again, we'll receive negative uh, negative comments from people. So yeah, racism still exists. And um, it's been here since I was a child. Um, and I think it'll be here for much longer than that as well. Kikan, thanks for sharing that. Uh, can we come back a bit just to the, the religious um, discussion we were having? You know, so within British Asian community, there's a lot of diversity as, as been has been touched on. It'd be entirely wrong to suggest there's a, a homogeneity within that 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 wider community. I've, I've figures from the 2011 census. Unfortunately, we don't have figures from the 2021 census. They've not been published yet. But in terms of uh, religious kind of breakdown, um, the figures I have are that Muslims accounted for 43% of the British Asian population in 2011. Hindus made up 18% and Christians almost 11%, Sikhs 9% and 3.5% uh, of British Asians were Buddhists uh, 10 years ago. In terms of the prevailing attitudes towards LGBT plus people within the various religions, um, we we did have a bit of a discussion about um, some some religions being more accepting than others, but I would like to get a bit more into that. Um, so, Kikan, you you've said you you're a Muslim, and we had the discussion about you being on social media, being told that you aren't a Muslim because you're gay. And within Islam, is there is there much of a spectrum um, for interpretation of 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 um, religious um, scriptures and and positions? Well. I don't, I, there's nothing from what I've read, because when I, I read the Quran and the Bible, when I was coming to terms with myself in London, uh, many moons ago, there wasn't anything in there at all that referenced homosexuality. 
there was a particular story, the story of Lut. I'm not going to go into the details of that one right now, but there's this particular story that everybody references to highlight that homosexuality is haram or forbidden or a sin. So when I was trying to come to terms with myself, I read the, the Quran page to page verses. Um, and when I hit upon that story, I just thought, I can't believe that the whole world focuses so much on that particular story and somewhere along the line through the generations it has been misconstrued completely um and even now um like i say a number of people say but it's against islam and so i ask people to read the quran and they, i specifically ask them to pinpoint what verse where does it say that homosexuality is a sin and everyone keeps referencing one or two lines from the story of Lut. Um, or they might say, oh, I can't be a proper Muslim because I don't know the story myself. And why should they bother researching or signposting it to me? Um, so I faced that kind of uh, challenge. And then in amongst um, a couple of years ago in 2019, I was caught up in the LGBT school row, the, the protests, um, which was basically a deputy head teacher had introduced a program called No Outsiders in primary schools. Um, upset a number of people within the Muslim community because they said they didn't want their child to be taught gay or how to become a girl if they were a boy or uh, or vice versa. And because I agreed with the teachers and the schools and I want to advocate that kind of educational programming, um, I was thrust into the limelight and people were sort of protesting and the majority of them were Muslims, as it happened. Um, so I was caught between a rock and a hard place in that respect. and. You know, every time I spoke to the leaders of the protests and they kept saying this is against our religion and I kept saying, but highlight it to me, I will take time out as well because I've read the Quran and I've done my research and I've done a lot of sort of soul searching and I wanted them to specifically highlight to me where does it say that homosexuality is haram or it's a sin. And yet again, even one of them was highly academic and he said, I don't have the time to show you Quran because you're not a true Muslim. You know, okay. So it's a bit of a carbide. So, so, and I find it doesn't matter which decade that I've lived in, or which generation that I've asked over the years, whether it's an older generation person or a younger one, they all keep saying, "Oh, but it's there." You know, we all know it. But as I keep saying, knowing something through hearsay and learning by road, because everybody seems to be conditioned in that way to say homosexuality is wrong, but nobody is actually sitting me down and saying, "This is what the scripture says." And what is the conditioning? Where's that coming from? Is that just cultural values? Yeah, I, th I think a lot of the conditioning, um, we have to remember that there's, there's two things, isn't there? there there's, uh, the Quran was written about 100 years after our prophet, peace be upon him. And then, you know, a lot of the stories or the verses from the Quran were learned by rote, so the, you know, word of mouth. And then obviously I would say that th certain things are misconstrued. And we have to remember that a lot of people coming through who identify as Muslims tend to come from rural or agricultural backgrounds as well. And it's only sort of, I don't know, in the last kind of like 100 years or something that things have changed. But a lot, but you know, when people are coming through the generations, um, where are the schools that they attend? Because, you know, like for example, my mother, she never went to school. She didn't read, she couldn't read. But she said to me as I was growing up in the early years, you know, not necessarily to me directly, but the story around my mom and everybody was that homosexuality is around. But I used to say, but how do you know if you've not read the Quran? And I'm using my mom as an example. She's, she's, I've lost her now, it's been many years.
but she's one of many. And if you multiply that by thousands, if not millions, you know, and it's going to, that story is going to be passed on to the generations. And if people are illiterate, where are they gaining that knowledge from? And even now, as I said, on, online, I'm talking to somebody and he said, but, you know, scholars are saying that it's um, forbidden and you're not Muslim if you're gay. And I said, but who are the scholars? Because as far as I'm concerned, the Quran was written for everybody, not just specific people. Otherwise, you're making Islam seem like a very elite religion because we know that homosexuality exists amongst the Christian community and Hinduism, Hindu, sorry, and Sikhs and other faiths or non-faiths. So what makes Islam stand out? Um, and that's just why I try to encourage people who are LGBT and of faith, um, in particular Islam, to try and reconcile those differences because they keep saying, I can't marry the two because it's not allowed. But I'm saying you can because this is how Allah created us. He created us as individuals and we all have to express however way we want and we have all different ways to contribute to society. Um, so, yeah, talking to individuals who are trying to reconcile the, the difference between faith and sexual orientation and gender identity is quite a struggle. can be quite challenging. Um, some people can come through it, um, and some people, not necessarily, I wouldn't say opt out, but they try to lead a more, as Sidi and Narinda have already said, a more heteronormative lifestyle, um, which is unfortunate, really, because I want people to be more their authentic self rather than conform to what cultural dictates. Thank you, Kakan. That was a, an incredible answer. CD, we talked earlier on about Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code. I'll, I'll tee you up to explain a little bit about what that is. In September 2018, the Supreme Court of India ruled that the application of Section 377 to consensual homosexual sex between adults um, was unconstitutional, irrational, indefensible and manifestly arbitrary. It's pretty, pretty uh, clear and concise uh, ruling there. So... Section 377, that was something that um, your organisation had had campaigned to see repealed. Can you tell us a bit about what that law was, where it came from and what the change is now that it's gone? Yeah, so um, Section 377 was the law criminalising consensual homosexual sex between adults. So this is a law uh, dating from the from 1861. So it, it was a part of the Indian Penal Code, and um, v- when independence happened, it, it, it wasn't repealed then or um, replaced. So um, it, it it has basically left a, le- a huge legacy of homophobia um, across the South Asian continent, and um, because it's it not only applies in um, India, but applied in India, but um, in other countries where anti-gay legislation due to the colonial homophobia. Um, basically, um, the Victorians were enforcing um, their mo- morality on the South Asian continent. And um, the, the scholar Ruth Monita has um, documented how many poems were systematically destroyed because they celebrated same-sex love and um this was this was due to a result of um the homophobia imported through british education and um i think that's something which is is really um 
a, a damaging legacy of the British Empire. Colonialism um, has a lot to answer for, city. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we set up a, a change.org petition, which obtained over 22,500 signatures. And we sent that to um, the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and um, didn't receive a reply either. But uh, this, in my opinion, I think um, the legacy of, of that law is so, it's so enormous that it has um, led to a lot of harassment and multiple discrimination and due to caste, class and gender and it also affects the diaspora communities as well. That's what I wanted to ask, yes. So that's essentially the attitudes were brought to India by British Empire and those attitudes have come back with uh, Indian people that have moved to Britain. Would that be a, a fair enough summary? Yeah, I mean, there's evidence that that the ancient temples in, in India um, were a lot more accepting of homosexuality. So um, just by the carvings, celebrating same-sex love and gender f- fluidity and um, uh, many, um, many gods are like love can transcend between genders. And um, so there's a lot of evidence that um, suggests that sex and sound sound has uh, was a very draconian law, which basically um, has left a huge legacy, which has only been recently acknowledged in 2018 when it was finally got rid of. Thank you, Sidi. Thank you. Um, Narendra, we've heard an awful lot um, from Kakan and Sidi in relation to the issues that face um, British Asian LGBT plus people. Now, you are a social worker, you work for BASWA, um, but you also have practised for many years. In terms of your experience of engaging with your colleagues, do you feel that social workers in the UK have sufficient understanding of these challenges that we've discussed? I think from, from my recent role, I think we've got a lot of learning in our profession in regards to um, just just LGBTQI plus um, communities in a whole. And I think when you add the identity of culture and religion and all the other factors that we've kind of, we've talked about today, it adds, um, it's very complex. Um, so, uh, you know, there's not, there's, I would say that we definitely have a lot of learning to do. This has been a huge insight for me um, as, as well, having conversations with Sidi and listening to Kakan's experiences and how he has been working with individuals from the community and what their, what their, um, their, their needs are and the, you know, short-term, immediate needs, but also their long-term needs as well. And do we fully understand that as social workers? I, I'm not confident that we do. Um, you know, we, we've got many challenges, you know, we, we serve both the state and society and we've got limited resources and time to work directly with individuals. But I think we've got a lot of learning to do in regards to cultural competence. Um, and, and that's going to have to be a huge major component if we're going to be working effectively as safe practitioners to support individuals, for instance, um, British, Asian, LGBTI individuals. Um, years ago, you know, we're constantly learning and evolving. Years ago, social workers, police, education and health and social workers were placing vulnerable children back um, with parents when they were victims of honour-based violence. But we've either educated ourselves and we've been leaders in this area and yet and now we're starting to safeguard individuals um, a lot better in that sense. And I think that's what we need to start. We need to continue to do that. We really need to understand 
how honour and shame play a huge part of part of um, the journey as well. Because I think sometimes people think, oh, it's okay, you know, um, you're in the closet. But when you're actually going, your whole family's going to disown you. Your religion, which you are absolutely, you know, you want to be part of that community. You want to practice your religion, but then you're being told as well that actually you're not accepted with that. There's so much different aspects to that in regard in regards to your identity. Um, if, so I think there's lots of things, lots of aspects of that that we we're not fully um, knowledgeable about. Social workers really. There's been a lot of societal changes. Um, and we've got to understand individuals. We've got to understand Asian um, individuals from the LGBT. We've got to understand Gypsy Roma traveller communities and so on. There's a, there's a lot of aspects because our social work has become, you know, as as the world has become very diverse and, and, and um, so has is, so is the UK, we need to start to get more in touch with people, really. I've been quite lucky in my role. I mean, I've worked with CAMS, for instance, and I've worked with a lot of children and young people and supported them who have... Um, really complex and, 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 and major difficulties with their identity. And they actually know who they are and who they want to be. And sometimes they are the ones that are being marginalised and, and um, individuals that work within education, health, they don't understand. And, and, and even as a practitioner, as a social work, even when I've tried to um, challenge some of the, the normative thinking around education, for instance, why an individual isn't going, um, because it does have, like Kakan says, huge impact emotionally and psychologically on individuals. And and when you've still got to educate um, professionals that you're working with, as, care, as lead care coordinators, as social workers, we really need to be more... We really need to be more knowledgeable, I think, um, in regards to this. Um, and, and I think what Kakan also mentioned about the fact that people need human connection and that trust... Um, it's a lot easier. And, and I, whenever I've been working with anyone, um, because I'm Asian myself, I've, I've had individuals come out to me telling me they're Asian because they've, they've, been, they've been comfortable enough to do so because I am Asian. And when they say to me, you know, they're from a, they're from a certain individual, they, they follow a certain culture and a religious practice and their parents like this and so on, I will understand them. And that's the key point. Um, you know, we've got to be able to listen and learn and 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 that's with every case that we work with you know no no same no same person's going to be the same we've always got to take that whole the, the per person centered approach really in regards to this but i think there's a lot of work that we need to do um in regards to social work and lgbti rights um well this is the question i was going to ask to wrap up i'm going to ask um kakan and i'm going to ask cd if they were equalities minister in the uk government what would the, be the first change they would make to counter prejudice towards lgbt plus british asian people but i'm going to ask you first Narendra, if you were chief social worker um, for england what change would you make uh, to counter prejudice towards lgbt plus people or how would you work to improve knowledge um, amongst the social work workforce of the challenges that community faces well, I would definitely protect and progress with the LGBT rights. So I'd look at law and policy, um, and including that is, um, you know, um, banning conversion therapy, which I think is, you know, very harmful. Um, um, I would be looking at implementing a more LGBTI inclusive education. Um, and, and again, it's about, it's very difficult, really, because not that it's, everyone brings their own opinions and prejudices and stereotypes 
Um, and, and these things are never as easy as I would have, um, have wanted them to be. But banning harmful practices, challenging cultural stereotypes, and that's by working with community leaders and community groups such as the ones that CD and, and Kakan are involved in. Um, and also offering the mental health support there um, and, and reducing suicidal rates. I would um, be looking at really advancing equality and human rights um, across the UK in regards to this. Um, but also making sure that, you know, it's always, it's like Hakan said, sometimes you can be entering a very hostile environment. And something that comes so easy for us to have a conversation about, about identity, sense of belonging, to us, you know, is it, we can talk about these things and we're on this kind of same page, but then how do you then discuss the same topic with someone that's coming in with that within a, within a hostile um, attitude really and and there's a lot of um there's a lot of I think globally as well there's lots of different um opinions uh, as well which um impact on us in the UK as well you know it, like um Sidi was mentioning about same sex sexual conduct where it's criminalized and so on but I really would be looking at the hate crime as well and reducing because that's really there and people are living in constant fear. So that'd probably be at the top of my list. Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Narendra. Um, CD, I'm going to ask you, Liz Truss, she resigns. For some reason, Boris Johnson uh, phones you up, promotes you to his cabinet as Women and Equalities Minister. Um, what would be the first change you would make to kind of prejudice <laughs> towards LGBT plus British Asian people? One change. Um, well, that would be a wonderful opportunity and a big responsibility. Uh, I, think you, I think it would suit you well. <laughs> Um, yeah, um, I think I'd, I'd look at reducing religious homophobia and um, increasing services which are culturally specific um, and targeted, which recognise that there's a vibrant and dynamic community out there which is not being represented. And um, like the second thing I would do is um, would be to look at the legacy of um, the anti-gay laws in the Commonwealth, so global gay rights and um, like th there is a lot of legislation existing, but uh, making sure it's enforced and um, in an authentic manner, like I think is a big challenge that hate crimes are not being taken seriously and or are being unreported. So anti-discrimination legislation would need to be more robust and filter filter down to the communities which are most marginalised. Thank you, Sidi. And same question to you, Kakan. What would be the first change you would make? Oh, my. There's, there's a lot to be said. Um, <clears throat> now, I, I just want to say that, you know, when we talk about um, the, the impact of colonial, colonialism on countries, which, you know, introduced uh, homophobic laws, as it were, um, for example, using India as an example, um, you know, the partition occurred in 1947. So we've had over 70 odd years. Well, not we, but the Indian government have had so many years to change the laws, to be honest. And so really, sometimes we have to take responsibility responsibility for our own actions, because otherwise we're kind of like colluding with our oppressors. So in terms of colonialism, you know, I, I do have a, I do have to blame them for a lot of things that happened, but when it comes to social work and educating the South Asian community as as regards to uh, being LGBT, I think it would be nice sometimes if there's some kind of information leaflets that you could take with you 
into the community or the household and say, pre-colonialism, how did India express itself in terms of sexuality and gender identities? You know, because we do have to sometimes look back and unlearn an awful lot of things. And we have to go beyond the last 200 years. Because even in the UK, it was only since 1960-something. can't remember. I'm getting really tired now. Huh. <laughs> but, you know, it's about, it's, it's about 50 years since um, homosexuality was decriminalized. So, you know, in terms of that, that progress, the South Asian diaspora is about 50 years mm-hmm. behind, maybe. Um, but with regards to making changes, um, I feel very, very strongly... I'm somewhat anti-Liz Trust, to be honest, because <laughs> as an equality minister, she's not very much um, promoting equality. I wasn't, I wasn't actually thinking um, of putting you in the Conservative government per se. You know, no, so. no. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. But I, I do think they need to readdress this whole um, farce over how they've treated people who are trans and non-binary um, with regards to the Gender Recognition Act. They really need to reconsider the, the issue of banning conversion therapy because the LGBT advisory panel, all of them resigned earlier this year because they realised that this particular government, so they tend to be paying lip service rather than demonstrating sincerity and you know, putting into action what they mean to do. That's another thing. Um, and yeah, just like Narendra and Siddhi said, there's enough, an awful lot of issues that need to be tackled. And with regards to Liz Trust as well, um, I think we need somebody who's much more inclusive in terms of, you know, supporting and guiding the LGBT community and championing their rights as well, whether we identify as South Asian LGBT or black or white. Um, it's got to go across the board, to be honest, Andy, you know, in terms of equality. You can't just kind of pick and choose. But it seems to me that globally there is a backlash because the number of people coming through now who are leaders, um, they're very much anti-gay. Um, and that possibly could be because of their, maybe they've got conservative upbringing or their values don't sit quite well with the more liberal side of the world. So we're developing kind of um, conflict in countries where it wasn't really, you know, because to me, for example, Hungary now has has to introduce anti-LGBT laws, whereas they didn't have it previously. We did an episode a few months back. Um, it was for Social yeah. Workday on on populism, and and we had a colleague on um, from um, from Hungary. Yeah, um, yeah, Orban is not. He's 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 doing a lot of bad stuff. So I should say, but it's it's getting like other other leaders like Trump and in Brazil. And if you notice who the leaders are, they're all kind of of a similar ilk. And I don't mean to stereotype <laughs> or generalize, but they're very much coming from you know conservative strong conservative backgrounds and they're trying to assert themselves as heterosexual patriarchs yeah, of yeah. society. And well there's a sort of a there's a co-option of religion in that as well. You know, if you think of Trump, yeah. you know, the most yeah. you know, in so many ways the most immoral man. Exactly. Somehow selling himself to Christian evangelicals in the States. Orban's doing the same. Bolsonaro. Exactly. Yeah. C D Narinder Kakan, thank you so much for your time. This has been a fantastic conversation. Um, Narinder said she'd learned a lot. I've learned even more. Thank you for taking part. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy. Bye.